You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today is Indigenous Literacy Day, a time to focus on Indigenous literacy, storytelling, language and culture. I'll be talking to Indigenous Literacy Foundation board member Sharon Gaegeus later in the hour about the day and the programs it aims to support. And I caught up with Sydney-based author Majok Tulba in town for the Melbourne Writers' Festival last week. We talked about his latest book, uh, When Elephants Fight, a young adult novel set in South Sudan during the height of the Civil War. Three. Triple. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And there were many incredible writers here for the Melbourne Writers' Festival last week. Among them was Madrak Tulba. The Sydney-based author's first book, Beneath the Darkening Sky, was shortlisted for the prestigious Dylan Thomas Prize. And the Sydney Morning Herald named Madrak one of 2013's Best Young Novelists of the Year. Now, five years on, Madrak has released his second book, When Elephants Fight, a young adult novel based in South Sudan, drawing on the author's own experiences. The book follows Yuba, named for the capital of South Sudan, a boy just entering his teens when his world is ripped apart by a brutal civil war. I spoke with Madrak Tulba last week and asked him why he decided to write the book and what he hoped to illustrate through Yuba's journey. Um, when I... Um, I have an idea of uh, writing a story set in South Sudan in the Civil War um, times. I came up with Juba as a character. And Juba, um, as a young boy growing up, growing up in a South Sudanese village, he's just a normal kid. Um, he's, he's not a superhero. Um, he makes mistakes. Um, He's um, a kind-hearted guy who loves uh, to play with his friend, who loves uh, um, staying outdoors, looking after his good. But um, what I was trying to get across was what is it like to to lose what you love? Um, what is it like to to move away from a place that you know so well um, and being forced to, to leave your home. And also, what is it like to survive on your own as a kid? And how a boy like Yuba could have courage and resilience to fight, um, although not physically, but to fight for his survival um, throughout the journey from his village uh, to the camp that he eventually reached. And the story um, was about the struggle um, that these children go to, to. The book is fiction, but mostly a lot of this happened in uh, civil war countries, especially in South Sudan. Um, and I was trying to, I wanted at first to write a nonfiction, but I decided to write it as fiction because I, I thought that I would. Um, I would get a message across well um, if I write the book 
their story as fiction. Yeah, I think fiction can be a really great uh, vehicle for getting in a whole lot of things that maybe, you know, the truth doesn't kind of really always enable you to do. I think probably the most powerful of this was exactly what uh, you were describing, which is that in order for us to truly feel uh, what someone has gone through in a time of war, you have to understand what ordinary was beforehand. Before his village gets destroyed, um, and it, it happens quite suddenly and with such ferocity, um, suddenly all these characters um, are scattered around um, and we all feel it because we've sort of gotten to know them in the early pages. Miss Ayan, Yuba's teacher, for example, early on has high hopes for him and, you know, but is still kind of giving him a rather, you know, a punishment that may, may be slightly more brutal than perhaps necessary. But at the same time, clearly as a caring teacher, uh, you get that sort of, you know, the real concerns of a young kid at school where he's like, does not like being punished, but sort of liked being praised. There's a bully at the school who picks on him. His best friend, is this young girl, Thicko, who he also maybe has a little bit of a crush on, um, which, you know, might or might not develop as the story progresses. So you really get involved in these uh, in these storylines and I guess in the way that a normal uh, story that doesn't have war involved would progress is that you might see these relationships, you know, really enrich and turn into other things. They do enrich but in a way that you could not possibly have envisaged if you if you didn't experience something like this, you're letting us do that through Yuba's eyes. So talk to me about, there is a a journey that the kids do, you know, after, I I think I can safely say that Yuba does manage to escape, uh, or the story would be a very short one, unfortunately. Um, There's a lot of other things that they have to face, um, quite apart from, you know, the horrific, you know, notion of an uh, an enemy with guns um, who perpetrates violence on a scale that's impossible to imagine. That they're also kind of pitted against nature uh, as well. Talk a little bit about those elements of the book. Um, normally, in um, the the jungles and forests of South Sudan uh, are full of um, dangerous wildlife, and in reality, one, um, for example, in the book, when the boys were displaced from their village, and they have to walk across the um, they have to take that journey across the forest, across the jungle, um, across rivers to refugee camp. They face those uh, wild animals because nature itself uh, sometimes is, is, we could safely call it circle of life. They, they, they also want to survive. And some animals like lions normally can feed on humans. And throughout their journey, they face those um, um they come across quite a lot, like snakes, uh, lions, scorpions. These are all um, living things that live in the forest or in the jungle, and South Sudan is full of them. And for these boys to navigate their way uh, between, these, between the army, between the rebels, between the nature itself, uh, take courage and intelligence and, and also teamwork between them. How, how would they solve? Uh, for instance, if they come across a lion, how would they outrun a lion? How would they dodge this lion and stop the lion from taking one of them? And um, and in in real life, during my time, there are a lot of young people end up losing their lives um, through uh, deadly snake, 
through um, lion, through hyenas, um, through rivers, crocodiles, and and uh, to make justice to the story, I had to include this in because mm. it's 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 natural. These are things that happen. Even disease and even disease. infection, um, those kind of deaths. Yes. Um, there are others that are even more heartbreaking, obviously. Um, you know, I mean, it, there's so much heartbreak in this book, but there's so much beauty in it as well. And I think that's the real genius of what you've done. I want you to talk about some of the characters. Tell me about the evolution of them because... Um, you know, there's a really beautiful relationship uh, at the heart of this, as we've touched on, which is the relationship between Yuba and Thicko. Yeah. Uh, they're both extremely brave young people um, with hope and, you know, without... Obviously, there are times, especially when we see things from Yuba's perspective, when things are looking pretty dark. But talk to me about this relationship and um, and about the some of the your favourite characters in the book as well. The story mostly is all about... Um, the human spirit and the bond, the friendships. And some of the characters, for example, Zico and um, Yuba, they have that strong um, love interest. And and this fight, but there is no room. There is no room for, for, um, for, for the love to grow. It might in, 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 in the next chapter. But other characters like Waterman, Nathan, uh, who is an aid worker in South Sudan, um, I throw him in there. If you come to the refugee camp, you could find uh, an Australian nurse who um, work in the camp. You'll find an American aid worker. These characters are there to, to, to champion their story. Not, for example, Juba from... Sudanese village to refugee camp, um, the relationship and friendship he will develop with these foreigners who are there to help refugees uh, will also change his perspective on um, how big the world is and how uh, through friendship, through uh, uh, human spirit, through born, people from distant countries can still come and work with locals um, um, and, and face the same problems that they are facing. And Pio Siko is my favorite character because... She's great. I, she's, I do love Siko. Um, she's... Um, she have that... She have that um, authority that we normally don't expect, especially from my community, South Sudan. We don't look up to girls very much. Whereas Siko, in the story, she's as strong as the boys themselves. And some of her ideas are the best. Normally, she's, she's smart, she's humble, and she has, um, she has that ability and, and hard of fighting. You definitely feel like uh, Yuba is also better with her as well. Yeah, she yeah. kind of really gives him um, additional courage and she's fearless, really. Yeah. Like, um, 
you know, I guess in the face of a lion, he has to talk her into being scared off because, yeah. you know, this... And, and actually, on that note, I sort of felt like the lion itself was a really good metaphor in a way for the things that were going on. Yeah. I think at one point, um, Yuba sort of observes that, you know, lions don't normally attack people unless they're sick or really hungry. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, that's a real metaphor for what was going on, I guess, with the rebels um, yeah. and others, especially the scene in the refugee camp where, you know, people are, <clears throat> are really fighting over these meagre supplies in a way that becomes really this some of the most kind of brutal, um, you know, scenes in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that is normally as human, when we are pushed to, to that age of desperation, um, those happen normally in, even in real life. Um, for example, the scene of, on the food distribution fields where people fight over um, the resources and it's, it's, it become the life of the fetus mm-hmm. who is feeding up to, uh, to go through this, who is feeding up to push down the weakest, who is feeding up to, to grab something at one. And this happened uh, in most of, um, it, 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 it happened a lot in, in African countries, especially in South Sudan, during the war time, especially in 1998, um, it was one of the worst um, years in South Sudan. And stuff that are in the book, um, 90% of them happen across Minicam in, in the South. And, and through the eyes of, of Yuba and his friend, we get to see... Um, what happened when the man, when, 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 when people gone mad, when the politicians hmm. fight over power and forget the basic um, human um, rights. And I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of the things that um, maybe Yuba will understand in, in, the, next, in the next book, because I was planning to. To, to keep going uh, with his character. I really hope so. Yeah. Um, if you've just joined us, uh, the show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I'm talking to author Madrock Tulba, whose book When Elephants Fight is uh, out now through Penguin. Uh, it's an extraordinary tale of, I won't say triumph over adversity because it's actually, you know, like living beside adversity, dealing with it. Um, it's a, an incredible tale and one that I'm wondering... Was there an element of this that you really wanted to educate people, certainly about that conflict um, or about conflicts generally? Because you do a really beautiful job of winding in very simply and I think accessibly to younger people what the war is. Can you talk a little bit about that element? Yes. Um, when I came to Australia, a lot of my friends um, asked me, why did I leave my country? Is the war as bad? Uh, they read on newspaper and on and see on TV, and um, part of um, the idea of writing this book was to answer those questions, uh, because Australia is a multicultural country now. Um, there are a lot of South Sudanese, African, and as well as other nations who are in Australia, and a lot of young people in Australia don't know about um, our background. They also don't know about the war situation. 
And also some young people take life for granted. They don't know what is it like out there. Um, and being born in a country like Australia is, is a wonderful gift. And I think if some young people read my book, they will understand, um, they will appreciate Australia more, and they will understand that life beyond our shores is not um, like the life in Australia. Mm. And maybe they will appreciate uh, what they have here. And they will appreciate peace and freedom. There's a lot to uh, really empathise with, though. And there's one really great scene uh, with Yuba um, and Thiko and two of their other friends. One of them's called Majok, uh, <laughs> which I thought was wonderful. And, and Chiang Cheng. Chiang, yes. Chiang, um, all kind of watching Oprah uh, in a sort of pay-for-view television shop um, where everyone's congregated to watch Oprah, but they're not able to pay to go in because they don't have any cash. And so they manage to watch through a bullet hole that's acting as a peephole and they're taking turns and it, and it winds up in a little bit of a childhood fight um, yeah. overseeing Oprah. <laughs> Can you talk? That's such a great scene. Is that totally imagined or is this uh, something that's happened? Uh, it happened. I, 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 I took it a bit to... Um, to make sense, but um, I was trying to to show them the outside world. Um, I don't remember the year I saw opera, but I was as surprised as at uh, Juba and his friend because um, I never saw a TV and people talking on through TV. With, it was something that we joke about and we call it magic. Um, we thought that it was uh, it was not real, and uh, for them to to see a clip of what the outside world is like was to give them that uh, view of opera, um, see the show, and also uh, it was to for them for the uh, the teacher. There's a comment where where he thought that. Uh, females couldn't be teachers. And that concept is still, uh, even now, it's still in South Sudan. And I chose Oprah to show him, to show them that beyond their border, people sit down and listen to to women um, and listen whoever have something to say. And that is where Tico characters develop in. Um, you could find that Yang doesn't go along well with the hardiest um, Tsiko came up with because of he's a girl and and boys should be able to make decisions and and come up with the better ideas, best ideas. But and the the Ofra thing is 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 um a click of Beyond our border, this is what happened, mm-hmm. and also it gave him that wish of maybe if he if he becomes someone important, he might be able to afford the TV and yeah. watch whatever he like um, at home. And um, yeah, it's, it's 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 that moment of wonder and trying to to learn something new. Um, what is this like? What is here? And what I will become if uh, when I grow up, and maybe what he want to achieve to have 
um, that freedom, that that access. Because TV, by then we thought that it's something that could only be owned by by the rich, mm-hmm. by the rich people, and and for him, for them, um, they can't afford to to even go and watch a full full program because um, they don't have they don't have cash. But that clips give him those sort of what he want to do uh, when he become uh, someone important. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I think uh, you've done a really great job with the female characters in the, this book. Uh, it's rather than, I guess, Yuba being anything other than what he is, which is a young boy who's grappling with extremely difficult and terrifying circumstances, you're sort of just showing um, that some of the, you know, the, the thoughts and beliefs that are governing that period of time and, and the people in it um, aren't right by the character's actions Um you know, whether it's the mother who's obviously by um, the stage they get to the refugee camp who starts to suffer from depression, um, you know, or it's, you know, Thicko just showing herself to be this incredibly brave person um, or Miss Ayan, like, being a kick-ass teacher, exactly, yeah. um, you know, really early on. It, it really does give you this idea that, uh, you know, that actually you should think for yourself um, and that, you know, it, like, it, it's not... Um, it's not a simple kind of metric. You're showing a very complicated society and complicated motivations as well. There is a lot of violence in here, a lot of really quite extreme violence and, um, you know, violence of a sexual nature against young women that, you know, you don't sugarcoat, but you're not you're not necessarily describing the violence in graphic detail except in flashes. Uh, talk about that element of the book because it's not inconsiderable amount. There might be some people who say, um, you know, children should be reading this book but this is something that's happening to children. So I really do want you to talk about that element. Uh, yes, it's, it's uh, the, the sexual violence is very widespread in, in most of conflicts in Africa, in South Sudan included. And for Yuva, as you said, the, the clips, the, the scene that um, I've shown through his eyes are just flashes of... Of what he sees, and and his emotion uh, through that. So um, the the I was careful not to um, to peel all the scene down, like describing exactly what is happening and all that. Although some of some of the scene might be uh, might be uh, graphic, um, but is is it would be like an awareness of you know sometimes we as people I could shock coat something and cover it up, but if it is happening in real life, then mean I would be lying to myself because it's already happening there. The violence is obviously really devastating and intended to be as such. I mean, the government forces, as you show, and I think it's not giving too much of the story away to say they they bomb the village, um, kill children deliberately uh, as a message to um, to not help rebels. Um, so they're they're deliberately going for these you know, terrorising tactics, um, which is to kill people who are unarmed civilians or 
who are pe- who are relatively unarmed spears versus guns. Yes. Um, so I think it's it's necessary to show. But I think the elements that really hit home are things like uh, Yuba, lo- like had always looked up at the sky and seen planes flying past and thought, and it had you know he wants to become a pilot one day, and yeah. it had helped him be motivated as a student. But then after his village is bombed, he's so sickened by it. He's like, I, I never want to be a pilot, and you start to realise that is the association that that kids will get um, coming out of a war zone, that this is what planes mean death. Like, it's it's really kind of horrifying. Yes, in in his mind, um, through that scene, he thought that every plane um, dropped bombs, which which is not the case in in reality. But to him, uh, being a pilot means maybe he would be dropping bombs to some villages or to some towns. So after seeing that, uh, what the plane can do, he dropped that idea of, of being a pilot because uh, he has seen what what the plans and what the pilot can do. And 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 I think um, through feeling and seeing everything that happened, uh, especially with young readers, is if if they are in his level, because he's a young boy, young girl, uh, most of them are young boys, young people, uh, they would be at the level of being at the same age, being at the same uh, the same level, and experiencing uh, through the eyes of a child like them. And I think with Juba, he's like someone who report what he's seeing, what he's feeling, and through his eyes. Uh, it, it, we watch the world where he lives, uh, where he walks, where he runs, where he sleeps through um, the lenses of his, his mind, his hope, his dream. And those scenes of um, the bombs uh, being dropped, even myself, I believe, by then when, when we experienced that, I thought that every plane dropped bombs. Mm-hmm. And and um, and it's something that I had to learn later. Uh, that plan, not every plan, is uh, a bomber. And through Yuba, um, that hope, that hope of being a pilot, that dream gave him the motivation, the motivation to go through his lessons. But eventually, um, he dropped the idea, and more ideas come up, and more hope, more dreams come up mm. to to push him. Uh, throughout the books and until the end. So it's, it's, um, there are a few concepts that we had as uh, children yeah. uh, that I had when I was um, in South Sudan and and that ever fire drop bomb was one of those uh, wrong concepts I, I had as a child. Actually, one of the most heartbreaking elements in this book, and I really hope readers, especially young ones, take this away, is what life is like in the UN refugee camp because these are people who've been through unimaginable horrors already, having uh, their village devastated, uh, seeing both violence and, and of you know on a profound scale, um, acts of severe brutality, including sexual violence. Um, they've survived, you know, all sorts of kind of attacks, whether it be from lions or snakes or um, rebel soldiers or government soldiers. They get to what should be safety and that's 
where like a lot of these, not just internal demons, but but also some of the great sadnesses are happening. As uh, Yuba enters the camp, he observes just the, the refuse everywhere, the rubbish and the smells and the fact that there are cues everywhere. Can you talk about this representation? It is utterly heartbreaking. Yes. Um, in in the Western world concept, um, refugee camp, um, they see it as safe haven. And especially during the time that the book is set in, even UN was not for for the scale of what that was happening. Uh, the number of refugees that turn up to the camp were beyond uh, what they hoped for. And in the camp is where most of um, memories come in because normally you do nothing in a camp. You sleep, wake up, um, sometimes there is no water, sometimes there's no food. And this is the time when everybody reflects on the life that they had before the camp. And sometimes the memories, when you think back of all the best, all the good things that you had before you were displaced, can turn off your spiritual um, belief, the hope, uh, the, 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 uh, the human spirit of, of fighting. And that is why some people easily give up and some even take their lives because they see no alternative. Whereas in Yuba, Tiko, they see it as, um, although the, today is bad, maybe tomorrow uh, might be better, maybe next week might be better, maybe the world will stop and they would be able to go back home to start over. And and as the, 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 the days, months, weeks, years uh, goes on and nothing happened, it's, it's the reflection of of acceptance. Maybe things will never uh, be okay, but we can live like this. Maybe uh, let's just continue with this life. We'll, 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 we'll take the life as it is. And, and the psychological war... Um, that goes on, especially with young people and and even adults in the camp, is far beyond than those who are still running or who are still walking to the camp because they have that concept. When you go to the camp, they say, "Oh, the camp now is you will be given um, a lot of food. There's water. You will be provided place for sleep. There will be safety." Whereas sometimes this is not the case. By then, one. The camp is full. After everything is set up, the government army, sometimes they come and bomb it. Sometimes they send the army to tear it apart again mm. so that people had to run yeah. to a different place. And this, um, these elements of, of being confined in one place um, is like a city itself. If, if you have 50,000 people living in tents, in one place with limited water, with limited food, with limited medical education, all these people will still have those memories of of their uh, past life. Absolutely. Some people were rich, some people were 
going okay some people let safety and now they are here that kill their fighting spirit just thinking back of what you had and now uh, who are you in this place you are a refugee who someone who have no home who have no food who don't know what tomorrow will bring that thought alone um and let a lot of people give up their fighting it's a really yeah. it's a really interesting element because having survived all these external dangers the internal dangers seem to be the most powerful in this book really um having physically survived um these vast and you know complicated horrors uh to get to a supposed safe place can sometimes be the most unsafe place it's a wrong concept that some people would just migrate to australia to uk for the sake of being well, the, not to say country. that people wouldn't i'm sure yeah. that there are people and uber yeah. may have been one of those he was a yes. very good at english yes. but i guess that the the you know the bulk uh, migration of of asylum seekers in that way is really was yes, not they would, yeah yeah in in normal for them for if, if you have hope of if you go to that country with the hope of uh would go maybe for education uh maybe to work and come back uh maybe to to um to to study that there are few people i think who would come as migrant but by choice they would they would have their own passport they would have their ticket they would have their financial resources to come and and study to come and work in australia to come and buy a house here to come and and do things that is different uh migration because that is migration by choice you uh, you you choose to go to that country because of uh a million reason but being a refugees sometimes they don't have a choice mm. um they would just um go to the country that would take them some may go to europe some may go to the us some may come to australia um and and i think it's just a matter of I'm going there just to to leave. I don't want to die. I want to go to that country. Absolutely. Just um just to survive. Major October, thank you so much for coming and talking about uh When Elephants Fight this wonderful uh young adult novel. Uh Yuba and Thiko, that that dynamic duo are such a so resourceful and inspiring uh as just character young characters. Um uh, I hope you are going to write some follow-up books for this cuz I could definitely see myself as a young person um <laughs> or even at the age I am now wanting to to stay in their story and follow how they go. Um do tell me that there's more coming. I'll, yeah, um yeah, I think I think so yeah. I'll I'll work um I I love I love uh, Yuva character. I love Tico. So Yeah, they're great characters. I'll, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep writing about them. <laughs> Wonderful news. <laughs> uh Magic Tuva, thank you so much for joining me on Backstory. You're welcome. 3 triple You're listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today is Indigenous Literacy Day, a day to celebrate Indigenous storytelling, stories and culture and to reach out to remote communities and help them close the literacy gap between them and mainstream Australia. Uh, joining me on the line at the moment is Indigenous Literacy Foundation Board member Sharon Gagius. 
Sharon, welcome to Backstory. Oh, hi, Mel. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So I want to talk a bit about this uh, this incredible uh, day and the programs that it supports. Uh, as I understand it, um, Indigenous Literacy Day is, is a time to really raise awareness about programs that the Foundation is running all year round. So can you talk a little bit about some of the, the enterprises that the, the Foundation is involved with? Yes, hi. Uh, well, what we did... Just we've just completed now. We launched um, a fantastic book called Deadly Sisters of Warrawa, and that's by um, Anita Heiss. And your viewers are probably aware of Anita and her work and Shelley Ware. And so that's um, a fantastic book about um, girls, Indigenous girls, who go to um, a boarding school in Hillsville. And so um, Anita and Shelley have helped them to come up with these. Uh, or it's a really beautiful book about their lives and their aspirations and what it, they've come from all over Australia to attend this college just to further their education and get a really good start on how things are in an Indigenous way. So that's one thing that we did today. And then the other, it culminates with um, the great book swap. So all around Australia today, in schools and libraries and universities, um, Young people have brought books and they, they donate a gold coin to the Indigenous Foundation, Literacy Foundation, and then they swap books. So that's just, well, I guess it's reusing all those books that if you've loved having a book and you want to share it with somebody else, and you know, it's a great way of um, highlighting the value of books and reading in our society. So that's a fantastic thing. So while, while this was happening to us in um, in Federation Square in Melbourne, the same thing was happening at the Opera House in Sydney. So there's a whole other 300 school students from all around have come and done exactly the same thing and they've launched a different book up there. So it's a full-on day. Yeah, it's re- I mean, one of the really wonderful things I think about the, the work that the Foundation does is obviously making sure that people who don't necessarily have access to literacy programs are actually getting access. But most importantly, the the kind of books and writing and stories and materials are all really culturally appropriate. I understand that, um, you know, there's uh, work translating books into many different Indigenous languages, um, you know, with, with results being that obviously people get to learn um, to read in their own language which obviously has been a problem in the past can you talk a bit about that element of of what the foundation does well first of all it's it's good quality books that we get out good quality books that um are just as you know any 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 young person uh, who who lived in Turak would be happy to get any of the books that we send out to our uh, remote communities. So that's the first thing. It's good quality books. And the other part that's marvellous is that we take, um, we help over quite a long process of working with um, Aboriginal elders and young people in communities, helping them to write books, develop books, illustrate books, and then we publish them. And it's a very, very um, important aspect of um, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is promoting in language um, books that stay in those communities and it just heightens the awareness of... um, the importance of reading in their first language and also some of the, the board books that we do for children are an Indigenous language on one side and then in English on the other. So it's helping all members of the community to, um, you know, just be engaged with reading and beautiful writing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of the aspects that I think is really important to stress as well because, you know, literacy is a, an issue and um, obviously one of the things you're highlighting on a day like today is the fact that, you know, a lot of uh, remote communities have been under-resourced. Obviously, this is a legacy of our history, um, something that needs to be redressed. Um, but on top of that, I guess uh, we as a broader Australian society are a little uh, illiterate, let's just say, about Indigenous cultures themselves. Is that also a big part of what your organisation aims to help to redress? Well, it is a big part. And the thing is that anybody who gets the opportunity to, um, you know, visit with Indigenous people in, in various communities throughout Australia, you know, when you talk to the young people and to the, you know, other members of the community, they all have great stories to tell. I mean, they're just, you know, the the ability to make those stories available to the rest of Australia is one of the, you know, the really fantastic things that we are doing because, you know, the kids who live on Tiwi, you know, their life experiences are just invaluable to, you know, students who, you know, live in, in, in Sydney or in Brisbane and, you know, in urban areas. And the other thing is that, you know, we also... Indigenous kids in, you know, Western Australia, they're very interested in finding out about Indigenous kids and the things that they do in Queensland. So we do a real good cross, uh, well, cross fertilisation, really, because we send some of those books to those communities, you know, to Aboriginal communities in different parts of Australia, so they find out about how things are in the other communities. So that's another thing that's fantastic. Yeah, that's really great. So is there any way that uh, people who aren't already involved can sign up for events today or can maybe get involved in, in future um, Indigenous Literacy Day events or actually get engaged with the foundation itself more on a more ongoing basis? Well, we have a fantastic website. Um, so if you just go um, Indigenous Literacy Foundation and you go on, we have a great website. Um, Indigenous Literacy, um, the, the day is always like the first Wednesday in September. So that's basically... And so, so um, some schools actually hold the, the book swap, you know, last week and some are holding it next week so it, it's sort of basically it's, I suppose it's like a, a book festival that lasts about a month but there's a lot of things that we do um, that are highlighted on our webpage it's fantastic it gives you a whole lot of your things that you can do and we've got innovative ways to fill books bookshelves you know across Australia and doing all those things I mean you know like when you see the joy on children's faces when they're discovering the wonder of books. It's, you know, every successful Australian person who is literate had a good teacher and good access to books and things like that. And that's what we want to spread. That's what we want to introduce into some communities where there are no public libraries. There are very, very few examples of you know written language in a community so you know if we can get books out there it just and it doesn't just one book just doesn't mm. go with you know one child or one family they're shared they get great books yeah it, it sounds everybody like everybody in the community really gets to um engage with it it's fantastic it sounds like there's a lot going on uh, and i will encourage people to go to indigenousliteracyfoundation.org.au i believe is the address um, to find out more about what's going on today and actually with the foundation more broadly thank you so much uh, sharon for joining us today on backstory i'm afraid that's all we've got time for this hour goes very very quickly unfortunately 
Oh, thanks very much for um, for your interest and um, keep on reading, everybody. Thanks so much. Uh, that was Sharon Gagius from the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Again, uh, that website address is indigenousliteracyfoundation.org.au. I can't believe that is already uh, the end of the show. It just goes so quickly um, when we're all having way too much fun. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, obviously, Sharon Gagius um, and Madrok Tulba, who we had an extremely long interview with, um, which was really excellent, his, um, his wonderful young adult book um, that we talked about quite extensively um, is out now through Penguin. Three triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 